0: My name is Joe Toscano, and I have a confession to make. I'm addicted to emergency medicine, but I'm in love with urgent care. I've been doing both for almost 30 years, but this isn't about me. Over those years, I've been privileged to work with and meet many of the people and personalities who have formed and shaped the specialty of urgent care medicine. For a long time, many people have felt that their voices and experiences should be made available to anyone and everyone practicing urgentology. Well, now there's a chance to do just that In a series of podcasts that i hope you'll enjoy and learn from thank you for listening in this edition of the urgentology podcast i'm going to be chatting with dr michael pond he's been involved in urgent care nearly since the beginning and he practices and operates urgent care clinics in the far north of upstate new york in addition to his long history of practice and involvement in the specialty as we consider the challenges and joys of his practice location i think you'll find mike to have some interesting insights Hey, it is a pleasure to have Dr. Michael Pond with me today on our second podcast, our Urgentology podcast. Mike is a dear friend, a relatively new friend, actually. Uh, although I feel like I've known him forever, he's just that type of a person. He, uh, when you become friendly with him, he brings you in and you know everything about him. Great, great man. But. I know a lot about you, but our listeners don't. So before we start, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you decided to go into medicine, what led you to emergency medicine and eventually urgent care?
1: Well, thank you, Joe. I'm got to tell you, I'm very honored to be here because I don't, and I want to thank you for it. I don't see myself as a large urgent care operator. Do have some rural stuff, which I guess uh, you're uh, interested in. And I'm a little worried about having to keep up with some of the real icons you're going to be having in your podcast, but I'm excited about the podcast because I listen to them. So it's kind of, it's kind of fun. I don't know if I'll be able to match uh, some of these icons like that last guy you had, Mike Weinstock. I mean, I I don't know how I can even come close to that.
0: You are very humble. You're a mover
1: and a shaker, man. Well, (laughs) I got to just know one thing before we start, because, you know, I'm Italian. I can get uh, emotional. So sometimes when I get emotional, you know, you use these uh, words. So I just want to know, can you beep me out? Can your editor just... Beep those words out. (laughs)
0: Absolutely, if needed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let me just, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I uh, grew up and live in the uh, Adirondack Mountains, way upstate New York. So if you mention New York, everybody thinks of the city. Uh, That's not the case here. I'm so close to the Canadian border that phones roam over into Canada, you get extra charges. Uh, I fly out of Montreal all the time. So a lot of my colleagues uh, tease me about being an international urgent care person and introduce me from Canada. And the funny part is a lot of people think that that's really true and they just let them go thinking about it. So I'm not in Canada, but close. I started uh have four urgent cares and do uh, occupational medicine. Uh, I started in two, 2003, which was really pretty early in uh, urgent care. And that kind of made things difficult. Don't talk about that kind of uh, later, maybe. I got into medicine or wanted to be medicine uh, kind of from the beginning. My grandfather was a veterinarian. My father was a physician. My dad died when I was pretty young. My grandfather raised me. So from my first memories, uh, I can remember standing on stools, holding retractors. First time I felt intestine in my hand as he's operating. And I don't know how he let me do this, but he was really hard up, needed help. We used to actually drip ether on a little mask on cats to keep them down during the surgery. It wasn't all fun, though. I also had to clean the kennels, which wasn't so much fun. So one day I went to my grandfather and said, I don't know, medicine, veterinary, vet, doctor, I'm having trouble. And I said, what do you think, Grandpa? And he says, well, I think you should take care of people. Mm-hmm. And those doctors get paid, and I've got a barter for chickens and shoveling, and uh, I think you should do people. Yeah, so I was like, well, <sighs> I think that's a no-brainer. So how I got into emergency medicine, which led to urgent care, my first rotation ever was in – thrown into a uh, emergency room where there was one surgical intern, one medical intern, no ED physicians didn't exist. The program didn't uh, have them. It was a regular knife and gun club. And this nurse, like on day two, burly lady, you know, always teaching you stuff, but grabbed me by the collar, dragged me across the ER, threw me in this chair and said, this ambulance is coming in with a code, you know, run it. I'm like, Ryan, what are you, what? And she, I'm looking at her, she's like, are you kidding me? She goes, the protocols are on the wall. Just read them. Get that patient in here. And I was like, oh, my goodness. So I liked it anyways, and kind of, I was in uh, med peak, and eventually saw my first ER doc. This is years later. I asked him, uh, like, you can do this? You, you can actually do this for?" work and she said yes and that's how i kind of got into it so um that's pretty much yeah that's interesting didn't know that did you
0: in your, yeah i did it i knew i knew you were Bad Pete's. actually that was probably fairly early on in that specialty the combination right
1: yeah it was first class yeah our first class yeah,
0: yeah. um how about in that transition from emergency medicine to urgent care, how, you know, getting interested in the business of medicine, opening your own place and where you located. I think, you know, I wanted to talk to you specifically about rural uh, urgent care. I think big cities are generally thought of as more fertile ground for urgent cares because you just have so many more people there, but how did all that happen? How'd you decide, oh, I'm going to leave the ED and open an urgent care, run the business, and I'm going to locate them in these crazy places.
1: Well, uh, geez, that's like six questions, John. I'm sure I'm going <laughs> to keep that straight, but I'll start out. you got to redirect me. You have to re- redirect me. How I got into urgent care was kind of threefold. But the first thing was I did emergency medicine for 20 years, was an ED director for 18 I ran those ERs in two different hospitals. I'd gone through 17 administrations and bureaucracy and committees and the stuff went on forever. And it kind of after 20 years of emergency medicine, I was like, you know, this, you know, there's a lot here. And, you know, working with the hospital and not having any control was an issue. And I'd spent probably the last 10 of those 18 years trying to get the hospital to get the 80% of people that were in the ER out of the ER and set up a fast track, that kind of thing. And I ran the emergency rooms with almost all mid-levels because we couldn't recruit to this rural area of docs. And docs were expensive. That was kind of the one uh, beginning. Uh, the second thing that came into that is I, when I was in the 80s, in was early 80s, I'm in residency, I'm on vacation down in your home uh, state of Florida, driving through Orlando. And I drive by this square building. And on it, it says seven days a week, walk in healthcare, whatever. I'm like, God, what's that? And uh I I I like was interested, you know, and it was one of these early urgent cares. You know, I called them a doc in the box, nobody nobody was really even calling urgent care then. So I saw that and said, geez, that makes a lot of sense. But I had gotten lost in emergency medicine, but it's many years later, and that always kind of stuck there. Then my wife got mastitis, and we couldn't get her seen. And you know I'm in this rural area and people don't understand the rural stuff and we'll talk about that but I said you know there's got to be something different here you know it's either emergency room or you can't get seen so that kind of got me towards the uh, the urgent care side of it and uh, you know kind of out of out of the ear bureaucracy into that and I can be my own destiny you know so now you had some other questions
0: maybe talk about you know I know you you uh have a lot of friends who also have, have founded their own places a lot of them in, in less rural locations when when you guys trade stories what's what what, the, what are the differences what are the challenges in uh rural urgent care that are not faced necessarily when when somebody's in a different location than that
1: yeah i think that part of my uh pro- problem was i started too early because i didn't have the numbers and the data and the statistics that has been developed in, you know, (laughs) in the last decade. So to be honest, I probably wasn't very smart because I didn't realize that the numbers of people you actually needed to have in urgent care. I just thought it was a great idea. We had these ERs. I got to, you know, start this thing. And, you know, my colleagues who have started after me and sold their business and retired, they had 50,000 people per square few miles. I got 50,000 people square 100 miles, you know, an hour between all the offices so that was something that I just didn't have the data to come up with that. I'll tell you, I'll mention Bill's book in a minute, but so a lot of the data I didn't have. So I would have done things differently had I known some of those facts that are that have been generated through UCOA and that kind of thing.
0: Well, definitely a pioneer.
1: I also had to develop a whole different system. So I had run ERs. Uh, My residency, I'd worked with uh, PAs. I'd run the ERs with PAs, like six of them and me now or one other doc. So I, very early to set this up, used mid-level standalone in these urgent cares. It was very very well except i was actually totally criticized for this uh and uh you know you can only have docs in there that was the thing so gist of it is that i kind of started a completely different kind of way to do it which now is pretty much standard and it's not uh, not such a big deal but back then i can tell you some presidents of organizations were talking to me about your model yeah yeah this model doesn't Mm -hmm. work or shouldn't work (laughs) but that so that's kind of the big thing is the rural is much harder but the other thing that's extremely hard is that unlike regular urgent cares where you can just take care of this sinusitis and send them out there's no you know most rural areas Especially ours does not have enough physicians. So fifty percent of what we see don't have primary care, and the closest tertiary center is two hours away. So you have to take care of all the stuff that you would not in an area where there was a lot of a lot of people. So that makes it, I I think, very different.
0: Yeah, yeah. You have to be more more things to fewer people. I know you've told me beyond the the medicine in a rural area, some funny stories about just being located near the woods. I don't know if you told me about a moose walking into a, to one of your shops one time. I might be mixing it up with a John Schufeld story about a cow walking into an urgent care. Maybe it was a joke or something, but what, what is a, what's kind of an unusual thing that's happened? You think it wouldn't happen in uh in Manhattan?
1: <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> there are, um, being rural does have its differences we do have uh, the moose and the bats uh, and uh, chainsaws and hatchets and a lot of things that you generally don't see uh, in the in the city i think that my most memorable thing could have happened elsewhere but i i think the thing that people don't think about is what I mentioned before, us having to take care of things over time, but also the really rare things that we see and have to deal with, which you in a, in a populated area, they would be gone. They'd go to somebody else. I have to tell you that the first epiglottitis that I ever saw walked into the urgent care and I was like, after 20 years of emergency medicine, I was like, you got to be kidding me. Uh, so that one I went with to the uh, uh, OR up the road. But we also get a lot of weird stuff like uh, hot hand syndrome. And we've had these syndromes, uh, you know, it's three Japanese names and there's only 300 cases ever described in the world and stuff. Uh,
0: What's hot hand syndrome? I don't think <laughs> familiar with that.
1: Oh, that, dude We'll have to do a whole podcast on that because that's a whole other thing. But it was, uh, it took months to figure it out and two meccas to send her to, to get it sorted out. She's a little 10 year old girl. We've had bleeds in the head and, you know, called the neurosurgeon and the guy refuses to go and the neurosurgeon says, well, will just keep them there. We'll talk to them each day. We'll sort this out over some time. It's just funny. During COVID, one of the farmers with a PO2 of 60 who, you know, should be getting intubated uh, says, no, I got to go home. I got to take care of the animals. It's like, what? So, you know, we call them each day. Probably the most interesting or the thing that sticks out in my mind uh, a lot was we're also in an area where there's Ironman and uh, there's a lot of uh, athletic stuff skiing here. I live actually in Santa Lake, Lake Placid, where the Olympics were in 32 uh, and 80. So one of my most unique things was I get called Ironman uh, guy, uh, you know, just uh, training to the extreme, get called by one of the staff that I got to come see this guy and I'm you know, I was busy and I'm like, I'll get there you know, he's walking talking and it's no, 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 you gotta you gotta see this guy you gotta see these eyes so I go to uh, over to see him and uh, it was sci-fi, uh, it was truly sci-fi the guy says he can't see, he opens his eyes his entire cornea was silver and gray there was no pupil no iris anything it was like absolute sci-fi like you know oh my god what is this he couldn't see two fingers and uh so you know end up calling the ophthalmologist <laughs> it's two hours away describe the whole condition and uh he says oh, i don't know i'm let me google that I'm like, go Google that. What are you talking about? And uh the gist of it was it was he'd been using all these weird goos for training and had an electrolyte imbalance, and his corneas had either absorbed water or uh you know had it taken out, so like your hands in water, uh, when they've been there a long time and turned white white and it resolved over like 12 hours and he could see again. Wow. Weird story.
0: That's great, case. So, in addition to seeing these unusual patients and running a business and everything you have to do around the the ranch there, um, you also were one of the founders of Naruka, Northeastern Regional Urgent Care Association. Of course, we're all fans of UCA, uh, but why did you and your colleagues up in that part of the country, and you should give a shout out to those guys, uh, go to that extra work to found found an urgent care association specific to that region?
1: Well... It started out very small. And in my mind, it wasn't uh, as altruistic idea as it is now. I was this one little urgent care operator trying to negotiate with all these huge mega uh, insurance companies, and they couldn't have cared less. I was just uh, nothing. So I got it in my head that I would form an association the New York State Urgent Care Association, and we would become some kind of IPA and negotiate, and things would work well. Well, one, I didn't understand that physicians are hurting cats. That was I, that. took me a bit mm-hmm. to get down. But honestly, I met Marge Sumet at one of the original uh, urgent care uh, meetings, one of the first, mm-hmm. and. She was really going to help me with setting up the practice, helping with insurance and that kind of thing. So we set up, we started meeting at the very early uh, UCAOA meetings, New York Association. Then I met uh, John Kulin, who is from New Jersey. And he's like, geez, we should combine this, New York State and New Jersey, which we did, and it. We're trying to convince people to join, and we had all kinds. I, you know, my model was bad, and emergency physicians would be part of it. And, but we got hit with New York State came up and decided we're going to pass this law that all urgent cares would be regulated, be certified, be. Uh, uh, they had to have all ER docs. It was a list of stuff that was uh, going to be very difficult. Um, uh, to meet. So we took that on, uh, and none of us had ever talked to a lobbyist or gone in there. We went to Albany, and we're calling up UCOA at the time saying, Hey, we need some help, you know, give us some money. Oh, geez, you know. Anyways, long short, we got through that, actually got that defeated, and realized how much we really needed it for education and the local regional politics where, uh, UCA now, you know, took over, uh, the much larger picture on the national level. So we've now worked really well together been supported by UCA and do education conference and politics and government. So, uh, and a lot of it's just, you know, educating them.
0: Fantastic. You know, I could talk to you for hours. Um, but I think we're getting close to the time I need to wrap up. And so in closing, um, I'd like to get what you think is the most important thing our listeners should know. And they're acute care clinicians, urgent care clinicians, but what have you learned in your many years about what's important in terms of achieving success and happiness in practice and
1: in life? I think business-wise, uh, you really have to surround yourself by good people. Uh, and I think that that's really hard to do, especially if you can't hire people. And I think you got to decide with those people, they're not going to fit everything perfect. They're not going to be a hundred percent glass, half full, half empty. You know, can I live with the half full? Do I like the person? Uh, and I think that that that's hard. You need help with that. I think as an owner, you can't be there all the time. Uh that is, that is, but you think you should, because we're a doc. i got to run this whole thing all the time. But you can't. And so you've got to uh, evolve, change your mindset, delegate stuff. But, you know, you do want to verify. So trust, but verify. I think another another important thing is a sounding board. Um, so you can talk to somebody. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you got to decide whether you're going to have partners, no partners, whether they're going to put their money in, not. And you can go it alone. You don't have to talk to anybody. You have partners. You got to deal with them, but it is something to have a sounding board, and uh, that's important on all levels. And then the balance part is, you know, related to the delegation and trusting. And you got to just take the time for your family and exercise and be away and get out, Uh, uh, because if you don't, you're not going to survive either one of them many of us know and the uh i think the thing that's most important uh is the, you know kind of the golden rule thing treat everybody like they're your uh family as you know the patients especially we you uh your employees but I mean, best marketing we've ever done to be successful is taking care of people like uh, uh their family because the word of mouth is outdone all our internet, TV, radio, entirely.
0: Other advertising. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It is the strongest. Great, great advice. Well, thank you. We didn't even have to beep you, I don't you think. You better listen. You, you, better, listen. you, we'll better, back you better listen.
1: listen again,
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Michael. Uh, Good luck with the rest of the winter up there, and uh, I'll be in touch with you for sure. Yeah,
1: it was minus 15 this morning, but uh, thank you so much, uh, Joe, for having me, and uh, I hope uh, people enjoy it.
0: Yeah, take
1: care. All right, bye-bye.
0: I'm going to just add a quick note here at the end. Michael mentioned Bill's book and NAFAC, and we did not get a chance to elaborate on that. In the third edition of the podcast, Peter Lamellis mentions NAFAC as well. These references relate to the very early days of urgent care, and I'll be dedicating some time soon in an episode all of its own about the origins of the Urgent Care Association. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Please be on the lookout for more conversations with more of the very interesting people from the past, present, and future of urgent care medicine on the Urgentology Podcast. If you have any questions or suggestions, please email me at jtoscano64 at gmail.com. And thank you again for listening.